0: you want to get out your sermon outline? It's a lot of scripture, fairly full today. The title of which is Fire and Rain, and it's not a reference to a song. We have a long passage today, 29 verses, so we're going to read it as we go through. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. And have that available so you can follow along. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you for this church. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray you would give us understanding to truly hear your word as it comes to us on this 10th anniversary of 9-11. Lord, please take us from where we are at this moment to the place that we need to be to fully appreciate the good things that you have written and preserved for us in your word. For the sake of your kingdom, apply your truth to us this morning. We ask that you would apply it to us in a healing, uh, restorative way, whatever that might mean. Uh, sometimes your word is like a scalpel and it cuts deep not to hurt, but to help us by removing uh, uh, spiritual cancer that's threatening to overwhelm our souls. Sometimes it's like a balm or an ointment that brings comfort and relief when we're hurting. But Lord, in whatever way it comes to us, we know it comes to us by your hand. So Lord, we know that you can heal us, and we're asking that you would. By your word and your spirit, we ask this in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Ten years ago, on September 16th, 2001, I opened that Sunday morning sermon with this story, standing right here where I am now. Reverend Lloyd Prater is an Episcopal minister who pastored a church one block from St. Vincent's Hospital in New York. And he spent Tuesday, September 11th, meeting ambulances in front of the hospital, praying and helping when he was struck with the reality of the situation. When ambulance door swung open, a gurney rolled out, and the EMT barked out, patient struck an upper abdomen with heavy object. He wrote, I looked at the patient, gasping for breath, straining against broken ribs and covered with a fine layer of gray dust, struck by a heavy object. Indeed, he was struck by a building. He was struck by an airplane. He was struck by terrorists. He was struck by hate. Those are some very heavy objects. Preachers are given two responsibilities when it comes to the preaching of God's Word. One is to explain the Scriptures, relating them to the everyday issues of life. And at other times, our job is to take life and explain it in light of the Scriptures. And this morning, we're going to wrestle with the second of those two tasks. We're actually going to try to take on both of them. But this is what I said 10 years ago. We're going to attempt to take life and explain it in light of the Scriptures. And then I told you, to be honest with you, I'm not sure I can do that. I don't have any definitive answers, nor do I have any bottom-line explanations. But it's important for us to try because I think the events of the past week will touch us more deeply and much longer than we realize. So we need to try to make sense of it all and realize how vulnerable and dependent we are. It's at those moments that we are most open to God doing some things in our lives. And we have to ask hard questions. Where is God when evil happens in the world? If God is all-powerful and good, why doesn't he prevent evil? The Bible says God's good, so how should we respond to evil? And while it's not an exact match, I look for somewhere in Scripture where an unexplainable tragedy or event took place, or as in this case was about to take place. In 597 B.C., Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. It was destroyed in 587 B.C., and the forces of evil swept across Israel. And we know from history that they brought death and destruction. Men, women, and children were killed and taken into slavery. The city was left in ruins. And the book of Habakkuk addresses that event. And so that's what I preached on that day 10 years ago. And as you know, I preach through books of the Bible. And right now we're going through the book of Genesis. I plan out the preaching schedule months in advance. I can tell you the text and title of every sermon from now through the end of the year. So when I planned the sermons for this month, last spring, little did I realize I'd be preaching on Genesis 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And since this is such a hard story, and this is such an important anniversary, thought it might be best to open this morning by asking the question why is this story here why is this story here have you ever seen any of those demotivation posters you know the motivation posters right it says something like teamwork at the top has a picture of a crew rowing and has some pithy saying at the bottom about everyone pulling together well, if you go to despair.com, you can find just the opposite. D motivation posters. These are a little different. One of them says motivation at the top. And at the bottom, it says if a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job. The kind that robots will be doing soon. And then there's one of my personal favorites. It's a picture of a cruise ship that's sinking. You immediately think Titanic. And at the top of the poster, it says, mistakes. And at the bottom, it says, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. (laughs) It's sort of funny when you first read it. But if you think about it, it's also sort of sad. Because this morning we're going to look at just such a thing. A man whose life story has been preserved for us in Scripture to serve as a warning. The purpose of his life is only to serve as a warning to others. And it's a sobering reminder of the kind of messes that people can get themselves into, even the people of God even people like you and me and as you read the story of lot in genesis 19 the question arises was lot truly saved and if all we had to go on was the genesis record i would vote no but the apostle peter inspired by the holy spirit calls him a righteous man in second peter chapter 2 it says if by turning the cities of sodom and gomorrah to ashes he god condemn them to extinction making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly and if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment God, who alone knows the hearts of every person, knew that Lot had been justified by faith, just as Abraham was. And even though he was greatly tainted by Sodom's wickedness, he didn't participate in it. And apparently Lot's conscience troubled him at what he saw around him, although it didn't cause him to flee on his own. And as we'll see, he tried to restrain the evil men from their intended sin against his heavenly visitors. And although he had to be dragged from the city to escape its destruction, he did obey by not looking back. But he suffered tragic consequences for his conformity to the world. Lot's life teaches us that when believers live in conformity to the corrupt, this corrupt world, tragic consequences consequences result lot moved to Sodom in Genesis 13 to pursue the good life he had done well financially he had a house in a prosperous city he may have had a seat on the city council as seen in his sitting at the gate which is comparable to city hall but he ends up escaping with his clothes on his back and he loses his wife in the process Lots of sad picture of a man who sought to gain his life, but lost it. He was saved by the grace of God, but saved as through fire. So we read in 1 Corinthians, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's singed, he's stripped of everything, he's traumatized by the severe discipline of the Lord. And as I read this story, I'm afraid there are many believers in our world today, in our day, who are vainly trying to live like Lot, to live for the best of both worlds. They've been told by modern evangelists what Jesus will do for them in the here and now. He'll help you overcome your personal problems, reach your goals, succeed in business, succeed in marriage, succeed in all of life. And they also throw in heaven as an added bonus although it doesn't sell nearly as well as the lure of success. So people sign up for success with Jesus, not realizing that he promised trials and hardships in this life. In the Bible, the main reason for trusting in Christ is that he delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come. If you remember from when we went through the book of Revelation, I know not all of you were here a year ago. We finished it a year ago today. Today. I encourage you to go back and look at those and realize that the wrath to come makes God's judgment on Sodom look mild in comparison. And if we would see the world for what it is, we might not be so quick to live for what it offers. If we would see the world for what it is, we might not be so quick to live for what it offers. So let's jump into the text and see what God's Word has for us this morning. We start by reading the story of the last righteous man. The last righteous man, that's the first blank in your outline starting at verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now right away at the beginning of this story, you see a very close parallel to what happened at the beginning of Genesis 18 with Abraham. If you remember, Abraham was sitting at the entrance uh, to his tent in the heat of the day. Three strangers showed up. And when he sees them, he runs to them and he offers uh, them his hospitality. And now in a similar way, one chapter later, we find Lot at the entrance to the city when these two strangers arrive and he rushes out to meet them as well. And it seems to me that we're meant to read these two stories in parallel, one being said as a contrast to the other. Here these angels are coming to check out things in the city to find out if the reports of its wickedness are true. They're met by Lot at the city gate, who is very insistent that they don't try to spend the night out in the open in the town square, but should instead stay with him. Why is Lot so insistent? Why is there a sense of urgency here in the text because Lot knows what sort of city he lives in he knows what might happen to these men if they attempt to stay in the town square clearly Lot at this point at least is not aware of the identity of these men and is simply extending to them the hospitality and protection he felt obligated to give Lot is the only man in the city who understands hospitality and the obligations that it brings but apparently there's a lot that this righteous man doesn't understand as we read the text it seems that lot doesn't understand that he's surrounded by unrighteousness and it brings its own corruption into his life and that's where the text goes next to this scene of unrighteousness and corruption Starting at verse 4, unrighteousness and corruption. How many righteous people was Abraham counting on a God finding in the city? Do you remember? It was 10. 10 righteous men. So what does the text say? Starting at verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, "'Where are the men who came to you tonight? "'Bring them out to us, that we may know them.' "'Lot went out to the men at the entrance, "'shut the door after him, and said, "'I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. "'Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. "'Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. "'Only do nothing to these men, "'for they have come under the shelter of my roof.' "'But they said, "'Stand back!' Now, without drawing too much attention to the obvious here and for the sake of the children present, let's just say that this is one of those sections of the Bible that will probably never find its way into a VeggieTales movie. (laughs) The men of the city, all of them, have gathered around Lot's house in this disgusting lust-driven feeding frenzy. And apparently Lot's hasty removal of these two strangers into his house wasn't quite hasty enough. Word has gotten out. And now Lot has a real problem. For one, he is greatly outnumbered. We don't know how many men there were in the city. We don't know the size of the city. We know it's a small city. And in that day and age... It may have been in the neighborhood of something like 5,000 people. It could have been smaller, even if it was as small as 2,000 people. You're probably talking something in the neighborhood of 500 men surrounding his house, and that's if the city is very small. So Lot is outnumbered, and he has an obligation to protect these men. Back in Lot's day, when you took a guest into your home, you were doing more than offering them a meal and a warm bed. You were taking responsibility for them, for their protection, for their safety. That obligation is yours, even if it means exposing yourself and exposing your family to great personal risk. And Lot, to his credit, knows that. And as a result, when these men gather around the house to make their demands, Lot's first step is to go out and try to talk some sense into him, an act which by itself would have taken a certain amount of courage. So Lot steps out, shutting the door behind him. But following this act of bravery, Lot then takes a terrible gamble. He does the virtually unthinkable. Rather than allowing these men to have the strangers, he offers them his two daughters who, as we'll see soon enough, are engaged but not yet married. As the father of two daughters, this just infuriates me. You read this, you say to yourself, what's going on here? What was Lot thinking? This is horrible. That's nuts. What sort of father would do that? There's no question about it. It's a horrible decision to make born of a horrible situation in which there to Lot's way of seeing, are no good options. But very possibly, Lot was gambling on at least one thing, and I really think this was a gamble on his part. His two daughters are engaged to be married to two of the young men in the city. Now the text tells us that all the men from young to old had turned out and surrounded Lot's place. That would have included the men to whom Lot's daughters were to be married, which isn't saying much for them to be sure. Now let me just digress for a moment. As I said, I have two daughters. A number of you have two, more or less. I have two daughters, both of whom, as you know, are married. And at some point, long before their husbands came to me to ask permission to marry my daughters, back when they first started going out, we had a chat in the dining room, man to man, just him and I. And during our little chat, at some point I told them, It has been my job for the last 20-plus years to protect my daughters. And since they were going to be spending time with my daughters without me around, my expectation of them is that they, in my absence, would assume the responsibility of protecting my daughters. And I expected them to protect them in every way you could possibly define that term. My expectation was that they would protect them physically, sexually, emotionally, financially, even to the point of protecting their reputations. And I let them know, not in a mean way, but in no uncertain terms, that if I felt at any time they were either unwilling or unable to protect my daughters, then I would step in and put an end to the relationship. And they had to agree to that. Had to. Now Lot's probably hoping that these men, and perhaps their families with him, might step forward to prevent anything from happening to his daughters. But apparently he neglected to give them the little I expect you to protect my daughter's speech. More likely, he was just hoping that even among such terrible men there was some semblance of honor and concern for one another. And even that might not ultimately prevent any harm from coming to these strangers, but it might buy Lot some time to think of another way out of this situation while the men argued among themselves. Now, that's not a justification for what Lot did. It was still a horrible thing to do. We go through, uh, in the high school Sunday school class, we go through whatever text is being preached that day, and I asked uh, the ladies in the class, What they thought of what lot did and one of them said that is not okay that was a good answer but i don't i don't think it's just a disgraceful act of cowardice i think it was actually a gamble on lot's part and the gamble fails it fails miserably And at this alternative suggestion, the men of the city become enraged. It's clear from their words that Lot's never been regarded as one of them. But rather, as a sojourner, as an outsider, all of which means there must have been at least some ways in which Lot had distinguished himself from the lifestyles and practices of these people. At the very least, he regards their homosexual desire as wrong. He calls it wicked. Nevertheless, the men of the city won't allow Lot to stand in their way, and so they rush him, seemingly with the intent of killing him. Because it says, we'll do worse to you than we're going to do these men. Well, the only thing I can think of that's worse is they're going to kill him. And at the last moment, the angels open the door, reach out, pull Lot back into the house, and immediately strike the men with some kind of blindness that renders them incapable of carrying out their desires, even though... Some of them didn't even allow their blindness to stop them from trying. The text says they wore themselves out, groping for the door. You have this picture of hundreds of men now blind in this uh, mob scene. You think about that. You don't know if you're the only one that's blind. I imagine this just degenerates into a free-for-all fight each for their own, trying to get out. But if you think about what happens here, the act of the angels blinding the men is a means of showing mercy to Lot and his daughters. But if you really think about it, it's also a means of showing mercy to these evil men. For even though judgment is surely coming their way, they never saw what hit them this really is a story of unrighteousness and mercy unrighteousness and mercy starting at verse 12 then the men said to lot uh, here the men are the angels have you anyone else here sons-in-law sons daughters or anyone you have in the city bring them out of this place For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Not getting a real high opinion of the sons-in-law. lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there, is it not a little one, and my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The angels, whose mission it was to find out whether the wickedness of this city is as bad as has been reported, now know all they need to know. There aren't ten righteous men in this city. There's barely even one, and he's not looking too good. So the angels instruct Lot and his family to get out of the city. Judgment's on the way. But before it's destroyed, the angels quite graciously give Lot the opportunity to take with him anyone else that will come. So Lot goes out and for the sake of his daughters, attempts to get his two son-in-laws. I'm not pretty sure I wouldn't have cut these guys off by now. But he goes out to get them. And they're described as sons-in-law even though they're not yet married to Lot's daughters, because in that day and age, being engaged was as binding as marriage. And as a result, from the time of your engagement on, you were regarded as part of the family. So again, Lot goes out to get these sons-in-laws, who, may I remind you, would have been out somewhere among this insane crowd of evil men just moments before, and now these same young men would be crawling around on the ground, blinded by the angels. In other words, Lot doesn't have to look very far. He doesn't have to look very hard to find these fine young men. And yet when he finds them, they don't take his warning seriously, which says something about them to be sure, but it also says something about Lot. What does it tell you when a father-in-law can't convince his son in laws that he's serious? They have to know something's up. They just got blinded by angels but they laugh off his warning the text says end of verse 14 thinking him to be jesting they're stupid (laughs) sorry and lot being unsuccessful in persuading his son-in-laws has no choice but to leave but even then despite the urgent warnings of the angels By the way, if angels ever show up somewhere in your life and they tell you to drop everything and leave now, don't argue. Do what they say. Leave now. But instead, the text tells us that Lot lingered. He's clearly reluctant to leave this city, which in spite of all its wickedness has some sort of grip on him. And amazingly, even after all this happened, Locke could barely bring himself to leave behind his possessions, his lifestyle, his society that has made his home uh, here for so long so strong is the hold that this place has on him. And this is a wicked place. It's not just an immoral place. It's certainly that. But Ezekiel 16 tells us Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Leesburg, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So despite loving the wicked city of Sodom, Lot leaves, dragging his feet, half carried out of the city by the angels, and even then he appeals to them for a concession. He has not to be sent to the hills, but rather to a much smaller nearby village. Apparently this too is an act of graciousness on the part of the angels, because judging from the language used here, even this small city would have otherwise been destroyed. And so one of the angels says, verse 21, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Now, if we've learned anything from the book of Genesis, especially from chapter 3 on, we should have learned that sin has consequences. And sometimes the consequences can be pretty severe. And so it is for Sodom, a place of unrighteousness and a place that will pay the consequences. And that brings us to the next few verses, which unmistakably demonstrate unrighteousness and consequences. Look at verse 23, unrighteousness and consequences. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And so Lot and his family make their way to the city of Zoar. And yet Lot's wife, in spite of the instructions not to do so, looks back upon the cities as the Lord rains down destruction upon them. And she too, like Lot, was very much captivated by Sodom in spite of its corruption and couldn't bear not to look back at it. She's strangely missing from the story when he offers his daughters to the men. I think of the moms of daughters. I can't imagine them fighting at the door to save their daughters' lives. But we don't see her. She doesn't show up. and she couldn't bear not to look back at sodom and so she looks and in so doing she pays the ultimate price for her disobedience being turned into a pillar of salt now in our responsive reading this morning we read the words of jesus in luke 17 where he said likewise just as it was in the days of lot They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop, with his goods in his house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Those are strong words. That's an imperative, a command from the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Earlier in Luke, Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once committed to obeying the Lord, you must keep going. That is the way of the righteous. But sometimes that is also the way of sadness. And that's how our story ends today, with righteousness and sadness. Look at the very end, verse 27 on. There's silence. We come to the conclusion of this remarkable story. The night's over. The sun is up. It's shining as the smoke rose from the land in the south. And so we read, And Abraham... Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived somewhere up on a hill some distance away stood an old man, Abraham, watching the rising smoke and flames, witnessing the Lord's answer to his prayer to preserve the city if there were ten righteous men, no doubt wondering if his nephew Lot had been allowed to escape. He knew Lot was righteous in the sense that he was one of God's people But Abraham surely knew that Lot was also unrighteous in the sense that he chose to compromise with a sinful situation. Lot's life is a compromised life, and it's become increasingly compromised for some time now. Yes, Lot is still one of God's people, and he still has a conscience that's bothered and troubled by the extreme wickedness he sees, but he's entangled himself with this shady existence. He's become enmeshed in this godless environment, so much so that it's affected his judgment and hindered his vision and has resulted in his making choices that will have painful consequences for both him and his family for generations to come. Lot, the man who chose the best for himself, who chose to live as closely as possible to the city of Sodom, has now lost everything in the end. He's lost his possessions. He's lost his wife he's lost his city, he's lost his dignity. And the value of this for God's people in every age ought to be pretty clear. If you look at God's situation and are, are appalled, guess what? You're supposed to be. Here's a man whose life is a living illustration of what Paul describes as a believer who will be saved, but only as through fire. You ever wonder what those means? Look no further. Lot is truly the man of whom it could be said that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Friends, we're in danger. We're in a precarious position, you and me, because we're a good deal more like Lot than we care to admit. And I'd venture to say that most of us here this morning are either just outside the city walls or have already made ourselves comfortable within it. And there's real danger here. Granted, there's real opportunity too, but there's also real danger. The danger of becoming enmeshed, of sinking our roots too deep, of entangling ourselves in the world and allowing the world to get a grip on us. Believers today are no more immune than Lot was in his day. We're just as prone to put ourselves in questionable, precarious situations in our businesses, in our relationships. And like Lot, we think we're okay. Don't worry, we can handle it. And sometimes as we're moving our tents closer and closer to the city, sometimes as we're drifting, our better friends might say something to us. They'll ask us questions about the wisdom of some of the choices we're making. And what do we do? We get defensive. We give strong assurances. We make all kinds of promises. If there's any influencing that takes place, it'll be in the other direction. (coughs) It'll all... Uh, it'll be all about our influence on the world around us, for sure. In the next scene, we've begun to compromise. We've begun to turn away from the very things that we once swore that wild horses couldn't drag us away from. I've seen this happen more times than I can count. Christians regularly and consistently overestimate their ability in these situations and rely on their own strength to pull them through in ways that are just foolish and dumb. To be sure, it's not a call to withdraw from the world, but it is a warning against becoming enmeshed in the world. H. Thomas Griffith was a great Scottish preacher said, it's okay that the boat's in the water. It's not okay when the water's in the boat. Christians can and should be a force for transformation in the midst of our culture, but there's danger there. And being an influence like that takes years of wisdom because there are times and places where lines need to be drawn and where going any further is neither brave nor bold. It's just plain dumb. Either because of the situation or because of the character and maturity of the person involved, or both. And a lot of Christians will go into questionable, precarious situations thinking that they'll be like Joseph or Daniel. And they end up looking like Lot instead. And they're being influenced far more than they're being an influence. And in the end, they manage to escape just. But they're burnt and singed and sometimes a little worse for the wear. Sometimes a great deal worse for the wear. Friends, these words are preserved for us as a warning to us. And all of us need to examine our hearts and ask the Lord to show us just how enmeshed and entangled in the world we already are and ask God to deliver us from the idolatries that keep us trapped in that place. Certainly, we need to be thankful for the grace that is ours in Christ. But let not this warning be lost on you. For you are the people of God, and if you are a child of God, then you are a righteous person. But then again, so was Lot. The sunrise had brought both judgment and salvation. But Abraham didn't know that. We're not told what he was thinking as he watched the smoke rise from the cities. Abraham is silent. His thoughts are his own. However, because the writer has directed our thoughts back to the place where just the day before Abraham had interceded with God for the people of Sodom the big question returns to the justice of God Genesis 18:25 shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just and the answer is a resounding yes and the narrator supplies what Abraham will learn verse 29 so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived there was not a single righteous soul in Sodom except Lot and righteous Lot compromised as he was was saved not on his own merits but through the grace effected by Abraham's prayers God remains just and the justifier of all who come to him Of course, the ultimate sunrise, bearing salvation and judgment, came with Christ. Isaiah sang of it, Isaiah 9, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Prophet Malachi declared it as well, Malachi 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise. With healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The preaching of sin and judgment can be traumatic, to be sure, for both the preacher and the congregation. And there's some danger as presenting the gospel as mere condemnation, exactly what Jesus says it's not. And an overwhelming emphasis on sin can bring a morbid obsession with one's own wickedness. So, of course, leads not to repentance, but to despair. I have some posters for you. But that's exactly where the satanic powers want us to go to despair. At the same time, censoring the painful realities of the gospel doesn't lead to tranquility. We intuitively know that a day of judgment is coming, even as we try to keep the fear submerged. The scriptures tell us of an unholy spirit who accuses our consciousness and whose accusations resonate with us because they are true and accurate. The devil holds us in captivity through our innate fear of death and judgment. And I think that well pretty well uh, sums up the classic definition of terrorism. And the only thing that can free us from our enslavement to Satan and to our sin is the blood of Jesus. In the word of the cross, God tells us he knows all our traumas, all our insurgencies, all our secrets, and he has already destroyed them at Calvary. We need not fear hell, not because it's not there, But because if we've been found in Christ, we've already been through all that. We've been set free. And whenever our consciences accuse us, as they have and as they will, the gospel takes us away from denial and preoccupation. And it brings us back to ground zero, which in Christian theology is the cross. You've been there before. It's time to go back. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. O Lord, our Lord, as we gather celebrating your glory and goodness, we acknowledge the shadow of today's anniversary. Together we remember September 11, 2001. We mourn the lives that were lost in New York and Washington and on Flight 93. We lament death's reign, the visible and invisible forces of evil, the principalities and powers of this dark world and the evil that lurks in the hearts of all men, including our own. And with the psalmist we cry, how long, O Lord, how long will your enemies scoff? How long will you withhold your justice from a world that is desperate to see it? Lord, we lament a world at war. We ask for peace in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Israel, and Palestine, in Egypt, and all the nations of the earth that long for freedom from oppression. We ask for protection over our loved ones and families who serve overseas. We pray for the fatherless and the widow, for the poor and the oppressed. We lift up our global leaders that by your grace they might lead with wisdom and justice and work for peace. And we acknowledge that all such hopes and longings point us to the one who will soon return and bring an everlasting peace and justice. Together we proclaim in the words of Psalm 146, Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plants perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.